Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. That journalism is the first rough draft of history has always been the guiding idea behind this podcast. But contemporary journalism, consumed online, has changed so much, I'm not sure the rough draft of history idea holds anymore. Or at least what I mean by it. Online news sites are paid for by measurable visitor traffic, measurable in astonishing ways, including how far you read into an article or how long you listen to a podcast. Yes, dear listener, I can find out how much of a podcast you listen to. Because ad rates are set by how many clicks a news organization's website gets, trivia always trumps serious news. People prefer it. That's why the Pope's recent visit to Iraq, a remarkable event, barely made an impression, even at serious news organizations. It was sandwiched between discussions of the latest flare-up of Mia versus Woody and Meghan and Harry versus Harry's family on Oprah. I suppose at some point in the future, if history is still being written, then historians looking at the newspapers of our time will be able to conclude that these were the days when our societies became terminally trivial. The Pope's visit to Iraq should have been front-page news in the U.S., but like everything related to the country whose government it overthrew, the journey has been ignored for the most part in America. Iraqis, and especially the citizens of Mosul, were overwhelmed by the Pope's presence. You'd think that would mean something to news editors. There was a time when the Pope visiting a conflict zone would have been front-page news. In 1994, at the height of the Bosnian War, Pope John Paul II decided to fly to Sarajevo, against the UN's advice, as part of a personal peace mission to the Balkans. It was big news, and NPR sent me from London to cover the trip. I flew into Sarajevo on a Luftwaffe cargo plane with one piece of cargo, the Pope Mobile, and one other passenger, the Pope's driver. A few hours after I landed, the trip was cancelled. Too dangerous. Pope Francis's journey to Iraq was no less fraught. ISIS sympathizers still carry out sporadic attacks around Mosul, yet the visit did not make a deep impact in the American or British press. This minimal coverage aids the collective repression from memory of the country and the war fought there to liberate it from Saddam Hussein's totalitarian regime. Since the subsequent catastrophe, insurgency, terror, civil war that overtook the place, concluding with the establishment of a so-called caliphate by ISIS in Mosul in 2014, people just don't want to know. The Pope is the only senior figure of what we still think of as the West to visit Mosul and the rest of Iraq in this open fashion. But there is more to the ignoring of this event by news media, particularly in America and the UK, than the fact that there are no clicks in it. I think I understand why, and to explain, I'm going to use Freud's classic formulation, trauma, latency, neurosis. The trauma was the Bush administration's utter failure in Iraq. It is intellectually lazy to say America failed in Iraq. The war was plotted, planned, and executed by the Bush administration. It was even branded that way. 
The war's origins, in part, really do have something to do with the Oedipal relationship between George W. Bush and his father, George H. W. Bush. The younger Bush came into office with his surrogate's briefing that removing Saddam was a foreign policy priority. An article by Nicholas Lemon in The New Yorker, published the week of Bush's inauguration in January 2001, opens, Let's assume just for argument's sake, that George W. Bush's presidency will have certain similarities to his father's, even that it will be a continuation of his father's, with a predilection for settling scores with people who did the old man wrong. Who was a major enemy to Bush administration one and could be given a comeuppance in Bush administration two? Might not the first name on the list be Saddam Hussein? Nine months later, the World Trade Center attacks gifted the Bush team an excuse for its revenge attack. No member of Congress with a serious hope of re-election was going to withhold support for the Iraq invasion, and American citizens fell in behind their leaders. There were other reasons. Because American society has come apart so quickly, it's hard to remember what it was like in the unipolar moment of Pax Americana. There was a confidence in the country that has leaked away. Liberal interventionists, and I include myself, saw how American power could be used to end ethno-religious conflicts which were popping up all over the place as the Cold War foundations that the post-war world was built on cracked and fell apart. The UN was really not capable of acting quickly to end murderous bloodshed. America had to take the lead. This had happened in Bosnia a decade earlier. It didn't happen in Rwanda, and the result was there for everyone to see. Saddam had used chemical weapons on ethnic minorities in Iraq, like the Kurds. He maintained control via totalitarian terror. Every year, Amnesty International headquarters in London releases a report on human rights violations around the world. In the 1990s, as NPR's London correspondent, it was my job to file a story when the annual report was published. Iraq alternated with Sri Lanka as the chief abuser of human rights in those years. There would be outrage about Saddam Hussein whenever I made this report. Something should be done about him. Well, now something was actually going to be done. And that's why liberal interventionists signed on. I covered the war as an unembedded reporter based in Erbil, capital of Iraqi Kurdistan. The night before the conflict began, I met Ahmed Shokat, a man my age who I hired to be my translator. He was a Kurd from Mosul, living in internal exile, having been driven out of his hometown violently for dissident political activity. I agreed to keep him employed until he could return home to Mosul. Ahmed was an academic, a natural teacher, and in the weeks the war went on, he gave me a course on the history and culture of the region, with special emphasis on its religious tolerance. We visited monasteries, Yezidi temples, and villages that had once been Jewish. At a time when all the reporting coming from the Muslim world was of fundamentalist hatred and framed as a clash of civilizations between them and us... The places we visited demonstrated a more complex reality, the long history of the Abrahamic faiths braided into a hole in one small region of the Fertile Crescent. 
We were in Mosul the day the regime collapsed, and in the city's anarchic streets, you could see the possibility for failure if the Bush administration didn't get its act together quickly. It didn't. Democracy cannot be given at the point of a gun. People who have been governed in a totalitarian way need a long period of guidance to be able to live in an open society. When decades have taken away the ability to think and speak for oneself, to have ordinary ambitions for free action, for your children's future, when one of the main forces holding your society together has been suspicion of everyone around you, trust in every aspect of existence needs to be relearned. The Bush administration ignored the lessons of the Soviet Union's collapse. It could have and should have known that when Saddam's regime was overthrown, anarchy was probable and that mafia rule of the street was likely. But they put nothing in place to prevent these forces taking root, and so Iraq disintegrated. A year after the overthrow of Saddam, I went back. By then, Ahmed had moved home to Mosul and been murdered. I was researching a book about him, which is still available in fine second-hand bookshops and on Amazon. Everywhere you could see and feel the fear and anger that had replaced the relieved bewilderment that followed the quick campaign to remove the dictator. I attended a press conference in Baghdad where almost all the questions were about rumors of torture at Abu Ghraib prison. They were denied. The day I left the country, conflict with the militias that had stepped into the power vacuum erupted on two fronts. As my friend, Sami Abdul Qadr, drove me through the Kurdish mountains to the Turkish border so I could get home, we heard news on the radio of a U.S. military operation in Baghdad's Sadr City neighborhood. That same day, some Blackwater mercenaries were murdered in Fallujah, their corpses mutilated and hung from a bridge over the Euphrates. The Marines were sent in to pacify the city. Fallujah was ultimately leveled. A few weeks later, the Abu Ghraib story burst into the open, and then George W. Bush landed on the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln to declare, Mission accomplished. In the Battle of Iraq, Bush said, The United States and our allies have prevailed. Nothing could have been further from the truth. For the next few years, the anti-American insurgency in Iraq built a head of steam. Abu Ghraib and its associated prison facility, Camp Bukha, would provide the leaders for that insurgency and then ISIS. But by then, most Americans, unless they had families serving there, had stopped paying attention to Iraq. Now, to go back to Freud. American society had entered the period of latency. It was unable or unwilling to think about the obvious fact that Iraq, on the terms that Bush took the country to war, had been a failure. As for talking about it, well, the crash of 2008 changed the subject, as did the rather remarkable fact that a man of color was elected president. Iraq was forgotten. The period of neurosis has been marked by American withdrawal from global leadership. This began in earnest the day Barack Obama changed his mind about punishing the Assad regime for crossing the president's red line and using chlorine gas on serious citizens. At the time, Obama's decision was popular in the U.S., but there was a price to pay for failing to act against Assad and disengagement from Iraq. 
In 2014, ISIS, or Daesh, swept out of the borderland between Syria and Iraq and raced towards Mosul, and there was nothing to stand in its way. The group immediately began to destroy Mosul's most precious cultural inheritance, its tolerance of the many religions in the area. But again, there was virtually no action by the Obama administration, nor did the Republican Congress push for concerted action. You would have thought the latter, the Republicans, being in thrall to so-called evangelical Christians, might have made more of a fuss, as Iraqi Christians were driven from places they had lived in almost since the time of Christ himself. But the evangelicals are really more of an ethno-nationalist political faction than a religious group, and politics had for almost a decade said Iraq was best forgotten. I returned to Kurdistan in 2015 and visited with Christian refugees from Mosul and surrounding villages of the plains of Nineveh. I went to the front with some Kurdish Peshmerga. They were at a position at the foot of Mount Alfaf, 12 miles from Mosul, guarding Marmatai Monastery, founded in 363 of the Common Era. It was a place Ahmed had taken me to during the war. By then, Donald Trump was president. With his feral intelligence, Trump had picked up on the deep desire of the majority of Americans to retreat from the world and throw up walls against it. He successfully ran for office by making withdrawal of U.S. troops in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere a main plank of his platform. With ISIS gone, it was safe to forget Iraq again. America retreated further and further from its place and responsibilities in the world in general, but in Iraq specifically. So the Pope stepped into the gap left by a U.S. in retreat. That might be worth a front-page story or two, even in the midst of a pandemic, but it hasn't been. Iraqis of all faiths, however, were grateful that Francis had not forgotten them, and they would be grateful to you if you remembered them as well. Forgetting Iraq really isn't a luxury Americans should allow themselves. Whether they were for or against the war, the failure of the Bush administration after the overthrow of Saddam was a major event in the history of America's calamity. Whether it is in the first rough draft of that history or not, there is no way to avoid that fact. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to help me keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.